Hey you, don't do that, do this. My name's Bob Gordon, welcome to Hibernation, a podcast about how people are getting on with life and being creative during this isolation period known as COVID-19. I'm joined by one of Australia's foremost, if not the foremost, music journalist and musician, Michael Dwyer in Melbourne. How you doing, Michael? I'm fantastic, Bob. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's uh, sunny, sunny skies here and uh, a lot more freedom to go out and about. Not so where you are. How's your mood? How's the mood thereabout? Well, you know, as a uh, reclusive curmudgeon by nature, I'm not finding my movements greatly restricted. It's a beautiful, crisp afternoon here in Melbourne. And yeah, apparently the streets are quite empty and people are are, are stuck inside their houses. Um, But I'm not out there wandering. Um, I'm very comfortable where I am. And I've got a beautiful view of some bushland and I'm feeling, I guess, uh, I'm counting my blessings. I guess it helps if you like your home, doesn't it? It does, and if you kind of have an obsession with with constantly tweaking your home, as I have been doing um, during these lockdown uh, lockdown months. Now, the last Melbourne person I spoke to was the the previous interview for this podcast, Tim Rogers, and at the time he he described it as a both a nervous and a uh, silent city. I mean, in, internally and looking from around, you know, your view and everything, it sounds like you've got your mind right about dwellings and your setting. But in, in general, when you when you do go out for your once-a-day walk or grocery trip, um, what's the feeling like around you? It's pretty strange because we, we're masked now. We, we're masked um, by law. And even though I was wearing my mask, you know, occasionally before. Um, the thought that every time I step beyond my front gate just to walk the dog, I've got to have a mask on, is a little weird. And seeing everybody else walking around like that, it really does feel a bit science fiction-y. And you've sort of got to work on, you know, smiling with your eyes and stuff when you pass people. Also, you know, found to my shame that um, when I'm out walking the dog, I can pass people that I know and they don't recognise me in the least, so I'm free to just um, walk on in uh, aforementioned curmudgeonly way. I find that quite liberating. <laughs> I'll, I'll say hi to them for you. I'll text them. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, that's a thing that, you know, um, I've, you know, practice social distancing or what, what we've needed to do here. But I'm personally, uh, and I, I guess a lot of people I know, never come to the point of wearing a mask. And so I guess there are these things that unexpected things like that uh, that you wouldn't think about until you're in this situation that literally walking past someone and they don't recognize you or you them or either uh, you, you actually wouldn't necessarily think of that it's pretty odd you know to real and, and even you know i get the occasional feeling that my dog is looking at me twice like who are you <laughs> um so yeah you know we do yeah, you do take for granted just those little sidelong glances and a, a hint of a smile as you pass someone. When that's all gone, yeah, you do feel a bit more isolated. And it's, you know, on the, on the plus side, um, you know, Melbourne, we like to pride ourselves on, um, on being, you know, ahead of the curve fashion wise. And, uh, I noticed that some, I've been doing a bit of work with Kate Miller Heidke recently. I noticed she's just launched a range of Kate Miller Heidke face masks. 
<laughs> I, can this, I can see this catching on and being quite a point of distinction amongst us uh, Melburnians. Right. Well, I think there um, there's two artists who have launched uh, branded face masks, and they both begin with K. You, can you think of the other one? Hmm. <laughs> um, let's see. It's not Claire too, is it? <laughs> if only. Uh, Kiss have yeah. put one out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's quite a few of them, but I mean, Kate's were the first that um you know really struck, really caught my eye. Yeah. And so at the you know I saw you. Uh, here in Perth back in, uh, it was February, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, or January? January. January, yeah. And th- that was uh, for group. Uh, the Thin White Ukes came to play at a David Bowie uh, annual event here. And um, coronavirus or COVID was something that we... It was sort of something like sw- swine flu or, or what was the other one? SARS that uh, seemed very um, overseas and not really maybe going to come here or seemed distant and, I guess, foreign. So very a very short time later, everything changed. And so anything that happened, like I think, like gigs or, or gatherings in January or February, they feel like a, a year ago or t- more, uh, simply because life was different then. So what did 2020 look like to you, say, around January, February? And... How's it turned out so far? Wow. Well, um, several things have changed. I mean, the band has obviously gone pretty much on ice, and it's a bit of a shame because uh, we had, when we saw you when we went over there to play the Mindwalk Pavilion with all those other David Bowie-loving family in Perth, we had an album we just completed with Shane O'Mara over here, which we're really proud of, and it's sitting there now just kind of waiting for a moment um, to be born. We, if we can't go out and play it, we're not really sure, you know, when the right time to release it is. We can't even get together to have a photo shoot now for the album cover. Mm. So that side of things, you know, we, we were booked to play the Let's Dance Corinda Festival as usual in September and we had plans to, um, you know, get back to Perth and up to Darwin and all the usual touring things that, we, that the band does. All of that suddenly disappeared, and um, weirdly, we had a bit of a Tim, a bit of a Tim Rogers connection because I, I was having a drink in his bar one night, and he offered us a gig there. Wow. And our, ours was the first gig that that didn't happen due to the due to the lockdown. So, so that gig went down with the bar, wow. um, and that would have, I mean, you know, that was in March. So I guess our last gig was in. Um, but other things that I do, I mean, I'm a journalist, so I'm still writing for The Age, um, even though, you know, obviously newspapers are finding it harder, you know, the advertising's dropped off, the events have dropped off, so the content's dropping off. Um, as a freelancer, I'm probably doing a little bit less of that than I thought I would be doing. Yeah. Uh, I also teach at Collarts here, which is an arts college where I teach people to be... Um, uh, journalists and critical thinkers, and that's been going as per kind of normal, but everything's by Zoom. So yeah, what I had planned was to have you know um, a little bit more um, travel with the band, I suppose, but nothing else much has changed. I have to say. I suppose you could put the album out, but really, the the touring is what 
would drive sales of your album, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's not really even sales of the album when we're interested. I mean, you know, obviously it's a factor, but it's not why you do it. It's just, you know, you've, you've, you've laboured over this thing, you've made something, and you just want to give it the best chance of life in the world. And if you're not going out there playing and keeping that momentum going, um, there's just a real fear that we'll, you know, we'll announce it on our social media and we'll get a flurry of sales and then it will disappear because there is no second wave, if I may use that term. Yes, that uh, um, like the word like journey, uh, wave has uh, been yeah. hijacked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's there and, and, it, will, and it will happen. Um, and we made a video for one of the songs Better Future, which you can, you know, which is out there and that's got pretty good. A lot of people have seen that and that was a lot of fun and we sort of did it, you know, kind of with an isolation vibe as so many people did at the time when it was still novel. Um, <laughs> so it's ticking along, uh, but there just doesn't seem to be a great reason to foist it on the public at the moment because it's part of the whole package of being around and being, you know, present in the in the world and, and, and we, we kind of don't feel present in the world at the moment. Yeah. So for people who may have preconceptions about ukulele or ukulele music, this is, um, it's not tiny tin. There's, there's no tippy toes. There's no tulips. This is, um, it's, it's a really loving embrace. And I don't know, you'd kind of take the songs apart and put them back together, uh, with love. And it's, and it's quite, and it's really dynamic. And, um, yeah. Yeah, so you all, did you all come from, the, was it the Melbourne Ukulele Orchestra or something like that? Is that how? Well, we, people, in, most ukulele players in Melbourne pass through the, what's called the Melbourne Ukulele Collective, that's okay. collective with a K, because it's an unwritten law that anything to do with the ukulele has to be somehow vaguely comical. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, in defence of Tiny Tim first, I'd have to say, he was a very great musical archivist and keeper of a lot of folk tradition. Bob Dylan talks about him very lovingly and respectfully in his autobiography. Mm. And Tiptoe Through the Tulips is a very complicated and difficult song to play on the ukulele. However, yes, unfortunately, that high-pitched falsetto voice forever enshrined the ukulele in this sort of semi-fist-making kind of role. You know, it's a musical instrument. You can play the piano in a comical way. You can, you know, um, you can play any instrument in a comical way, but it gets a bum rap because it's so small, and I guess it invites amateurs, which is another thing I love about it, by the way. Mm. But, yeah, if you apply yourself to the ukulele, you can be, you can, you know, make people's jaws drop just as convincingly as any other instrument. And we sort of aim to be, to arrange things in a, in a very... Um, elaborate and difficult way. We played songs David Bowie. They're not usually easy. There's usually a lot of chords. They cover a lot of different styles and genres. So, um, you know, we're not just strumming along where, yeah, as you say, we explode them and put them back together in a really kind of intricate and involved way. And people like it. That's the proof of the pudding, really. Yeah, they, they, I've seen it on two occasions when you've been in Perth and, uh, they've, greeted it quite joyously and um yeah it's, it's quite something to behold and it's um, been great for us actually you're you're loved and 
also the thing is at the moment among some other instruments uh, in isolation ukulele sales are going through the roof are they yeah 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 well that's the thing about i mean you know jane kennedy uh, kennedy and malloy and mick malloy do a show here on triple m on friday afternoons and she's just fallen in love with the ukulele and you know that's sort of a whole eye-rolling uh, dynamic from mick malloy oh no not another ukulele song but she's genuinely enthused about it. Oh, man, I've always wanted to play an instrument, and in a, in a few hours I can play a few chords, and guess what? In a few years you can play like, you know, whatever, Miles Davis. <laughs> Not necessarily Miles Davis. That was just the name that came to me. But, um, yeah, you can... It's a good entry-level instrument. Beat the hell out of the recorder. I mean, I learned the recorder at school. Whoever carried on their co- recorder career into their lives, you know? Ah, look, recorders like T-ball is for sport. You're not going past the age of 12. Yeah, it's the T-ball of musical instruments, the recorder. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the ukulele is, I don't know, I'm not very good at sporting analogies. What, what do you got, Bob? What's the ukulele? Volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> beach volleyball. See, you can take it to the beach. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. I found one on a beach once, and uh, I posted it on Frio Massive, and it belonged to a little boy who uh, has autism and was very um, attached to his ukulele. And uh, for a moment there, when I went, oh, a ukulele, oh, I felt very glad that I didn't remain in that uh, thought and that it was returned to <laughs> it, uh, he, the, the instrument's owner who loved it. Hey, that little boy. Hey, that little Isn't boy. And Halen. <laughs> or Miles Davis. So what have you been doing? Is there anything during ISO and lockdown that you done to be creative or, or productive that you haven't done before or it looks like you it's going to be a while there uh, that you're thinking of doing? Well, uh, initially I took the opportunity to, you know, being the kind of really incurable David Bowie nut of the band, I'm always frustrated that, you know, I'll say, hey, let's do Loving the Alien and the other two go, oh, man, we've already, you know, we've already got 52 songs we're really to... So I took the opportunity to pick an obscure David Bowie song from each year, from 1966 to 2016, and come up with a solo ukulele arrangement of those songs. I'm, I'm up to 20 years, and I've had a bit of a break. I've done 1966 to 1985, and they're all on a Facebook page called Sweet Thing, a David Bowie ukulele workshop. Uh, and they're kind of experiments to see how I can go about adapting these things for one ukulele. So that was quite involving for a long time. Then I got involved in the, making the video for the Thin White Ukes, A Better Future. And then I thought I'd put my musical talent, Bob, to playing the piano, which is something I've wanted to do all my life, is learn the piano. So I spend quite, I spend about an hour a day um, playing the piano very badly and that's I find that incredibly rewarding so I have taken the opportunity to you know do sort of creative stuff that um, I would not normally have um, had the time to do I suppose yeah so that's been it's good to I mean we only had a a smaller taste of of the isolation thing but it's um, really good to have a project during times like these to uh, drive you a little bit if it's affected your work and you're not working or whatever and I don't know just having something that's uh, 
maybe a little bit out of your reach, you, you have to keep reaching. Um, yeah, it, it, and it's really cool. And the um, I find as long as long as it's something creative, like I, as I said before, I also like just home handyman stuff. You know, replacing the skylight or sanding the back steps or you know whatever it is. You know, the garden looks like it, it's been you know manicured by a by you know Japanese gardener with OCD. It's just you know I, I love all that stuff. So. As long as there is some kind of transformation happening, I find it satisfying. It can be musical or it can be kind of, you know, carpenterial or whatever. Um, but yeah, I feel like you've, you've got to create, you've got to make the difference every day in some small way. Mm. Now, you've done over the years many thousands of, of interviews, and I've read all of them, and, um, well, quite a lot. And... There's two that I just want to ask about, and they are in, in some ways related. Now, we've obviously been talking about a very iconic artist uh, dotted throughout this conversation, David Bowie, and you were fortunate enough to interview him. Was that in Los Angeles? Uh, no, it was in New York. It was in New York. So oh, that was early 2000s. So that was, which album was that for? Yeah, so the story was, um, it, it's hard to sort of believe now that David Bowie's stock, it, you know, as a figure, as a popular figure, was very low in 2002. Um, so much, I mean, he'd just spent the 90s doing very kind of obscure, difficult records like Inside and Earthling mm. and, I'm oh, sorry, Outside. Inside. See, I've got this song. Everything's inside now. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I was, you know, what used to happen in the, in the in the music journalism business was that a record company would ring you up and say, oh, we want to fly you to Los Angeles to interview, uh, in this case, Korn, who's a band I had zero interest in and actually pretty much loathe. But, okay, a, a trip to Los Angeles is always good and you know you're going to get a good story because you're in Los Angeles and you're face-to-face and mm. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, sure. Okay, I'll go to Los Angeles and interview Corn. And then a few days before we went, I got another phone call saying, um, would you mind coming back through New York and interviewing David Bowie? <laughs> and it was almost apologetic, the tone of it, kind of like almost, you know, I mean, reading between the lines, it was almost a, look, we know he's passed his use by date, but we've just signed him. Can you do us a favour? Incredible. And, of course. Yeah, um... So that's what happened. The the little interesting little twist is that when I got to Los Angeles, the fellow from Corn, Jonathan Davis, threw a hissy fit and refused to do any interviews. So I just sort of sat poolside for a couple of days at the Standard Hotel and then went to New York <laughs> and met Bowie at the top of a very tall building on Madison Avenue. Um, it was about, well, you know, it was a couple of months after 9-11, so... There was a kind of loaded sense about that, you know, which we made some sort of grim jokes about, me and Dave making grim jokes hey, about hey. 9-11. And, yeah, it was for an album called Heathen, which hey. uh, which is probably one of my favourites. And, of course, I, I have no way of knowing how much of that is because I have this, sort of, um, you know, rather special memory about it. The connection, yeah. For me, it was, uh, it was a real... Um, yeah, he got back together with Tony Visconti, who was who produced a lot of his best records and, and David played 
most of the instruments on that record, so there's a real sense of reclaimed ownership about it. And he did a lot of soul-searching kind of songs, but um, yeah, we do we do several of them with the Thin White Ukes, actually. They're, they're great songs. So I was happy to enter at that point in his career. Yeah, he got into a sort of a purple patch with the last, uh, I feel, um, the last couple albums. Um, was it Hours? That was, uh, yeah, the... Hours I wasn't so fond of, but you can see looking back that it was leading to Heathen, I mm. think. And I really and liked Reality. Reality, yeah, yeah. in 2003, I, I loved. Yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty good one. And then, of course, those last two, yeah, which were other phase again the next day and black star so yeah it you know if we we look at his career now as being this fantastic um you know kind of uninterrupted <laughs> thing of glory but in fact you know he had that really commercial 80s period that divided a lot of people I mean, his 90s was very obscure so yeah this idea of him being this all-time icon it wasn't always the case 20 years ago um, he was he was almost kind of in the hat thing basket weirdly, mm, oddly, and and the other one I want to ask you about is a uh, linked to Bowie in many ways and a very much a complex character himself was Lou Reed. Yeah, uh, I remember you texted me after you completed the interview like um, like you'd totally been through the ringer, but you know a lot of relief. <laughs> Uh, so that was that was that, was that in Sydney at the Siebel Townhouse or something? Uh, no, it was here in Melbourne ah. at the Como Hotel. Um, in that was must have been about two thousand ish. She was here for the Ecstasy tour, whenever that year was. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was. You know, the whole kind of there's this mythology about Lou and his hatred of journalists and how tough he is. Um, but, you know, I, I had also heard David Byrne talk about what a furphy that was and what an absolute sweetheart the guy is, and maybe people are just not used to dealing with lifetime New Yorkers who are kind of very terse and a bit combative in their normal interactions with people. So I took both of these ideas on board and, yeah, I walked in and uh, his tour manager was had just been replaced. Okay. Uh, and we new guy who was very nervous and so I'm thinking okay you know <laughs> and the tour manager said something to me along the lines of look you've got 20 minutes but it probably won't last for 20 minutes just keep your head down and hope for the best right? <laughs> thanks and, you know this guy's virtually trembling you know his eyes are popping out of his head and I'm thinking okay and then Lou walked in and sure enough he was terse and gruff and monosyllabic uh, but we had a good chat and you know, to me, it always comes down to, you know, don't buy into the persona of the person if you talk about their work. You know, these people are artists. If they understand that you know and respect their work, why would they not want to talk to you? And that's what I found with Lou. And at the end, I mean, I was very, I was actually surprised at the end when I got into my copy of Berlin. He said something along the lines of, you know, it's been so nice talking to you in this really kind of sweet old man kind of a way. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I take all that stuff, all that kind of, you know, Lou Reed attack dog interviewee thing as being a little bit of, I'm sure he's party to the mythology, but it wasn't my experience of him at all. Oh, that's that's great. There is, as there are many uh, interviews 
on YouTube where there's a guy, I think, um, I think he's Eastern European and he's, I don't think he actually had done an interview before. And, yeah, right. And, but somehow he's on camera interviewing Lou Reed and he's, you know, it's his second language and he's a bit, you know, a bit of a goofy by nature sort of person and obviously very nervous. And, um, you know, Lou Reed says to him, you know, about, you know, that journalists are pigs and, and all that. And the guy's getting more frightened by the moment. And then Lou Reed seems to take kind of, um, pity and is almost, almost kind of caring for him until they get to the end. And, um, yeah. it's, uh, because, you know, of course, people are more than a one-note uh, stereotype, which we, he was often cast into. He's always, yeah, there always seems to be talk of the many layers and complexities of, of Bowie and the kind of one-note black grump tone of Lou Reed kind of thing. But, um, yeah, you know. Um, and you know, listen to his songs. I mean, how many, you know, incredibly tender songs as he got, you know, listen to Magic and Moss or Tony Island Baby or, you know, some of those beautiful velvet songs. Obviously he's got a really soft, sensitive, romantic streak. And and probably, as is often the case with you know, people who come across as a bit gruff and combative, he's probably more tender than most people. Yes. In, true. In the, look, I'm still talking about him like he's he'll always still be around for us, Bob, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. I um uh, worked with the Perth Festival one time and drove uh, Laurie Anderson around for a couple of days, and um, who was about the most Zen person I've ever met. And yeah, you know, and occasionally we got to talking a little bit, and, and she'd kind of. Um, oh, at one point, I in the car, I, I drummed up to the uh, the courage to go ask, "How's Lou's album going?" And that was the. Um, this was two thousand and two, so that was the. Um, the Raven, I think. Yeah, yeah. And um, and she said, I think he's pretty happy for it, happy with it. Um, maybe I might end up on it, doing back a, a vocal or something if he lets me. And there was just a few kind of really like you know just around the house kind of comments that she made, and because that's that's life, and of course he's you know also that, and uh, but yes. Uh, I've just been listening to him a lot lately and yeah I'm just struck by the tenderness that sometimes you forget I guess when you uh, veer away and so how I read an article that said that while the the numbers have been on the increase the kind of um, the spread has been on the uh, the decrease and to be honest I'm not even sure what that means um, because you just hear so many of these, I don't know, proclamations. But it's uh, no one's going anywhere for a, a while anyway, and you know, no one's in the clear. You know, people over here where it seems all almost normal. You know, thinking you know you can't be too complacent; anything could happen. So, how are you feeling looking on? Just at least say till the going towards the end of the year in terms of you know your own um, activities and, uh, and and things you want, how you feel about what's coming up? Well, I've got 30 more David Bowie songs to nuss out. <laughs> um, I have to learn to use both hands on the piano. Yeah. Um, I have 
quite a bit of home handyman stuff to do. I've got a couple of kids who I'm helping through high school. Of course. And I've got a bunch of students who I'm helping through life. And I'm still um, writing stories mostly to do with music and a lot of stories and um, webinars and things related to Indigenous artists and Indigenous issues, which is something that I've become quite um, passionate about in the last sort of five to ten years, I suppose. There's a lot that happens. There's a lot that I'm doing which doesn't really involve being face-to-face with people in the street, I suppose. So by accident or design, that's where I'm at. And what I'll miss, going to gigs, I suppose, and playing gigs. But even then, you know, I'm, I'm of a certain age and I feel like, I mean, I've been going to, to festivals since 1981, so I, I don't miss going to festivals. I, I kind of feel like I've had my innings there. It's young people. That, I mean, I heard Tim say this on this podcast last time. That hurts, you know, because my son is 17 and he's just getting to that age where he just loves gigs and he's bought tickets to Splendor next year. Mm. And I'm just hoping Splendor happens next year, you know. But... You know, on the weekend before the lockdown, first lockdown came in, I saw Mavis Staples at Melbourne Zoo and I saw the darkness at the Metro and they were the two of the greatest gigs I've ever seen in my life. And I thought, you know, I remember thinking at the darkness, well, if this is the last gig that I ever see, this is a high note to go out of. Yeah. Um, so I feel able to have had all that experience. And as for me personally, tinkering away in this, between these walls. I don't know, it's going to take a lot to get me bored. And on that note, Michael Dwyer, thank you for hibernating with me on Hibernation. It's a pleasure. I'll hibernate with you any old winter, Bob. Thanks for joining me on Hibernation. Until the next time, look after each other. We're worth it. Bye.